China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Ling Li, a lecturer at the Department of East Asia Studies at the University of Vienna. Today we'll be discussing her essay, The Third Road, Where Will Xi Jinping Go in 2022? Ling, thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start by asking uh, for a, a history of your intellectual interests or, or an intellectual biography. How did you come to be interested and in to study the Communist Party of China and, and China's political system? I actually started with corruption. And in my study during my PhD study of corruption and anti-corruption, I realized that I couldn't explain the causes of corruption without delving into the politics. So in that pursuit, I started, especially for anti-corruption, you know, the party disciplinary and inspection institution is very, plays a very important role in the design of the anti-corruption institution and the practices. So in looking into one, the factor of political interference in judicial activities as a cause for the proliferation of corruption in courts and also in the role of the party who plays in the anti-corruption activities, I realized I really have to look into the party. But my approach is kind of different. And there's a gap in current studies of the Chinese Communist Party. We have a lot of studies looking at elite politics, especially the promotion patterns in relation to the biographic information of party leaders, how the factions are propelling the promotion patterns. But my approach, because I have a law background, I'm interested in the norms, the rules of the party. So that's how I get into this business of starting the rules of the party. What are the big outstanding research questions about China's political system of the Communist Party that that you want to explore in the future? As I said, my focus is the normative part of the party. Uh, That's one thing. Another thing is the connection between the party and the state. And now we have get used to, I should say, we have accepted that China has a party state structure, which is kind of different from a single party state. That expression implies it's just a, the difference is a quantity. Other systems have multiple parties, and here you only have less parties. You have one party system. But my understanding of the party state is the entire structure of the state is very different mm-hmm. because they have this uh, political control incorporated into the state institution at the very beginning. So my focus is one on the rules of the party and the second how the party through these links with the party structural design to control the state and through the state to control mm-hmm. the society the reason for our discussion today is a essay that you wrote in the really fantastic made in china journal and just to set up a bit of context before we dive into that conversation obviously we're recording this on december 12th so we recently had the sixth plenum 
And coming from that, we had a, a third resolution on history. The signals coming out of that, as well as the way that Xi Jinping was described in the history resolution, is confirming to many, I think, the safe supposition that after the 20th Party Congress, which will be held sometime next fall, that he will take a third term as the general secretary of the Communist Party, the uh, head of the Central Military Commission, and then the next spring will likely take a, a third term as the president of the PRC. This has opened up a conversation for many about how long does he rule? What are the various paths for him to stay in power? Does he do a Deng Xiaoping and at some point sort of formally fade from power, but still hold a great amount of informal power? Does he stay in the office of general secretary for life and, and die in office? This has opened up a whole range of, of possibilities here. And we're going to get to, in our discussion today, one that I think no one had really thought of as a possibility, which, which, you're, which you argue, which is that he can revive the position of party chairman. So we'll get into that in a bit, but I wanted to first ask you, for the sake of listeners, if you could give us just a short history of this position of party chairman. What was it? What powers did it confer historically? And then what happened to it? Where did it go? First of all, I have to make clear that there are a number of top positions of the party state that are called chairman, Zhu Xi. This include the head of the state. The head of the state will be Guo Jia Zhu Xi. Which, which just interrupt, that, the, that's what we would, when you see President Xi Jinping traveled or met with a leader of state in Chinese, it would say Guo Jia Zhu Xi, which would right, literally translate into state or country chairman. Correct. Yes. Okay. Yes. And there's also the head of the CPPCC, which is the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference. That's Guo Jia Zhengxie Zhu Xi. The CPPCC is also a top level uh, state institution. And there's also the head of the military, which is called Guo Jia Junwei Zhu Xi, the chairman of the Central Military Commission. So there are a lot of chairmen running the country. But now what we're talking about is the chairman of the party, which is Dang Zhuxi. So it's the, the full title of the head of the party is the chairman of the CCP Central Committee. And that office was created for Mao Zedong in 1945 at the Seventh Party Congress. And before that, Mao was already promoted to become the chairman of the Central Secretariat, which functioned more like the Politburo Standing Committee at the time. After Mao's death in 1976 and the arrest of the Gang of Four, Hua Guofeng took that office until 1981 when he was compelled to resign from that position. And then that office was temporarily given to Hu Yaobang, who was not very keen in taking that position himself. So in 1982, when the party congress met again, the position was dissolved. If you want a little bit more information of the party chairman, I would add that the party charter has never specified the scope of power of party chairman, but records of party documents reveal that Mao Zedong, when he held that position, he enjoyed final decision-making power. 
when Mao was promoted to the chairman of the Central Secretariat, which is two years before he was promoted uh, one step further to be the chairman of the party, the Politburo issued a decision in 1943, which stipulated that Mao had the final decision-making power on issues discussed in the Central Secretariat. I couldn't locate any document about internal party rules regulating decision-making of the Central Committee after 1945, but indirect evidence shows that Mao continued to exercise the final decision-making power after he was elected as the chairman of the Central Committee in 1945. For instance, which I also used in my article, which you mentioned, Mao sent a written instruction to Liu Shaoqi, uh, who was the, at that time, uh, I think he's the vice chairman of the state, but a member of the Politburo in 1953. The reason that he sent this notice to Liu Shaoqi and Yang Shangkun was because Mao Zedong noticed that there were a few party documents which were signed off for circulation by Liu Shaoqi without pre-approval by Mao himself. So he sent the instruction and in the instruction Mao wrote, from now on, all documents and telegraphs that are issued under the name of the party center have to be reviewed by me first before circulation, otherwise they are invalid. So that shows Mao had the veto power in the Politburo. So, so now th that was a really excellent history. Can you talk a, a bit about why the title was uh, abolished? Was this a, a functional bureaucratic restructuring? Was this symbolic? Why did Deng feel the need to, to get rid of the title? First of all, I don't think it would be accurate to accredit the decision to abolish the position to Deng Xiaoping alone because the power structure in the party in 1982 was more pluralistic rather than autocratic. Uh, we have to remember at that time, Deng just returned back to power a few years earlier and Deng owed his comeback to power to his colleagues, including those who launched the highly risky but decisive coup at Huairentang in Zhongnanhai in 1976, which took out the Gang of Four. And Deng also owed his return to power to his colleagues who pleaded for him in front of Hua Guofeng and asked for his reinstatement. In addition, many of the party leaders, the senior party leaders at the time who survived the pre-1949 CCP revolution and the Cultural Revolution are no less senior than Deng Xiaoping. Okay, okay. I'll, I'll rephrase the question then. Why was the office of chairman abolished? It's less about who did it. I, I was actually just trying to understand why did they abolish the office of, of chairman? Okay, uh, so still the background I think is still relevant because we have a pluralistic structure. That's one thing. And the other thing is Deng was working hard to promote the reform policy, right, in the 1980s. And one important item of advocacy of Deng was to ask all other party elders to retire and to vacate their offices to the younger generations who were expected to push the reform policy forward. So his pleading 
and persuasion would have carried little persuasive power if he asked others to retire and at the same time to put all the power in a very concentrated manner in the hand of this party chairman. So it seems that the most acceptable choice for all power groups involved at that time was to abolish the office of the party chairman and to divide the power. Was there any other symbolic power? Was there any other symbolism behind the abolishment of the office of, of chairman? I'm curious just how that was likely interpreted or received by Chinese people. There's some commentary that, that one of the reasons for getting rid of the office was as a a signal that the period of one one man rule had had ended, and there was a movement towards a more collective leadership. Do you see any uh, any symbolic reasons why chairman was abolished? Yes, for sure, because that title has been carried by Mao Zedong for about thirty years, and it's almost like a part of the name of Mao Zedong. And we all know about the extent of cultism in the period of Cultural Revolution. So it certainly carries symbolic uh, value about this personal cult around Mao Zedong and associated with the title of party chairman. So now let's let's fast forward to the Xi Jinping administration. We saw in March of 2018 at the PC meeting that the constitution was amended to get rid of the term limits, the, the only de jure term limits on Xi Jinping's, one of his three titles of president. So now this leaves open the possibility that he can stay in power in his three titles in, in perpetuity, again, assuming that he's able to hold on to those. You make a, an argument which I found really interesting, and I wondered if you can just take a moment and spell out why looking at the possible paths to remaining in power most people, I think, are assuming that he'll stay on as general secretary, which is that and chair of the CMC are the really big, powerful positions. He'll just stay on in perpetuity. You make a different argument. And I wonder if you can just take some time right now to lay out why the office of party chairman could possibly be an option for Xi Jinping. And I think critically, why would he need to do that in your estimation rather than just staying on as general secretary? The motivation or the logic for the pursuit of that title is the current title that Xi Jinping currently holds, the general party secretary, no longer reflects the reach of the power that he has accumulated. Although to continue to state to stay in power by starting a third term as a general secretary is much easier than recreating the position of party chairman. But I think the latter approach to reactivate the party chairman would allow him to match the current, the informal power that he has with the title. Can I just ask a follow-up question to that? It doesn't seem so far as if the title of general secretary or the office has been limiting to Xi Jinping. He's been able, as you say, to really sort of expand out his own personal authority within the confines of the general secretary position. Why couldn't he just continue to expand out the, the functional powers and symbolic powers of the office of the general secretary where do you think a limitation will occur that would 
possibly incentivize him to revive the office of the chairman? I appreciate the question. It's a very valid concern. Why? Because most people, I believe, think the general secretary that position can enable him to do everything he wants already. But、uh, in my observation, there's certain limitations of the position of party general secretary in comparison. To party chairman. To start with, Mao once said that a party committee was like a squad, and the party secretary is the squad leader. So I guess the squad leader will be called a sergeant. In the logic of that analogy, since the party chairman is a leader of the central committee, which has a body of close to four hundred people, so I think that will make the chairman at least a captain or. Uh, lieutenant colonel, something like that. So that's a boost authority, even in the terminology of Mao Zedong. And now coming back to the current situation of Xi Jinping, after having served two terms of office, she has consolidated a position that is de facto above the Politburo, and the party propaganda machine has been consistently promoting an image of Xi, who is above his colleagues at the P,、uh, Politburo Standing Committee, and his name was monopolizing the space of the front page of all party media outlets, and that is very noticeable and unprecedented since Mao's time. So this image and his actual hold of power. Is pointing to the direction of the supreme leader of the party, but I think his current position does not give him the entitlement to overrule his colleagues at the Politburo Standing Committee, either in collective voting or on issues that fall in others' portfolio.、Uh, he can probably strong arm or blackmail others to agree with him, but there are no normative rules. That entitle him to do that. So, if you look at the the way that Xi Jinping is ruling over the Politburo, especially the Politburo Standing Committee, is through some ad hoc methods. For example, the leading small groups. Right? We know he has established, he has chaired a lot of leading small groups, which bypass many other colleagues, his colleagues in the Politburo Standing Committee, so that he can take in charge in、uh, sectors that belong to other people's jurisdiction. But if you think about Mao's time, the leading small groups originated in Mao's time. But Mao didn't have to chair any of the leading small groups. To monopolize policy, there's another observation that reflects the limitation of the party secretary for Xi Jinping to do what he wanted to do. Is currently he can command the Politburo members to submit a written report to him, reporting their performance of the their work in the past year only annually. And he can command the leaders, the party groups of all state institutions, including state council, the Supreme People's Court, Supreme People's Procuratorate, National People's Congress, to report to him annually. And all those report to himself and the Politburo Standing Committee 
are made to him on behalf of the institution. It's not like all the Politburo Standing Committee members individually have to answer him whenever he summons them to answer him. So the current position does not give him that kind of power. But then if you think about Mao's time, Mao can command Liu Shaoqi to write a self-criticism, and he has the power to reveal the self-criticism letter as he wishes. And he can dictate when Liu Shaoqi is supposed to do a self-criticism at a party meeting and who are the audience and how long this criticism should be. That's a different level of power. First question that comes to mind to me is, is it the office that grants power to the leader or the leader who imbues power to the office? In other words, what you were just describing with Mao's ability to say, from now on, I have to review all documents and telegrams. Was it the fact that he held the office of party chairman that gave him the ability to make that command? Or was it the fact that he was Mao and had sufficient personal authority within the system and so it was less that it was the kind of formal title that gave him those powers. And if I were to step into, if, if Mao had handed over the office of party chairman to me, I could make all the demands I want about cables and telegrams needing my approval, but no one would have listened. The reason I ask that is, I wonder, just would love to hear your thoughts on, would it be that Xi Jinping revives the office of party chairman that gives him these new powers? Or is it the fact that Xi Jinping is just so powerful that he is able to give the office of, of party chairman that power? In more institutionalized political systems like the United States, it, it is the title of president that gives you the power, right? When you receive, when you come into office on day one, you get virtually all the powers that come with the office, irrespective of your background, your ability, how well known you are, how, how old you are. And the case of Xi Jinping seems to be a very good example of how it's his own personage and his own bureaucratic acumen, skill, and maneuverings which have garnered him so much power, right? Hu Jintao held the office of general secretary and wasn't nearly as powerful as, as Xi Jinping. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. It's a question of which way the causality goes. Is it the office that would grant Xi Jinping these new powers or the other way around that really Xi Jinping could make up a new office and it would be very powerful because it's him. It's a fantastic question. I think we cannot separate the two. Is it the office that gives the power to the person or the other way around? I really think they are reinforcing each other. One thing about decision-making at the very top of the party is there's no rules about the scope of authority of any office at the top level of the party. It's the same for the party general secretary. It is the same for the party chairman. However, uh, the top office, the chair, has a lot of procedural power. For example, to determine on the agenda of the meeting, when to have the meeting, who can attend the meeting, and they can, these kind of rules are up for manipulation. So those people who have stronger personality and stronger manipulative capacity will expand the space of power for that office. And those who have no intention or no capacity to do that will have their power space shrunk over time. Uh, so 
I think the individual uh, certainly have different level of influence to shape that power space. But on the other hand, I do think the official office does enable an able power seeker to achieve more than one can achieve without that office. If you look at Mao's career, the title the party chairman provides him the platform to go beyond what he had had before and become what Mao had become. And if you look at Mao Zedong's career before 1945, he couldn't make so much waves as he had done later on. So I do think the, the office would provide certain level of legitimacy to the person who occupied that office, which he wouldn't otherwise be able to do without it. You touch on this in the essay. How would Xi Jinping navigate future leadership succession in this new situation? So he moves up to the position of party chairman. Does he look to groom a successor for party chairman? Or does he hold that office as singular for himself and manages what we would think of as the normal succession process now to the office of general secretary, president, and and chair of the CMC? How, How do you see this new situation, how do you see succession playing out in this new party chairman situation? I think from uh, Xi Jinping's viewpoint, to have the office of party chairman will have two benefits. One for him to continue to rule from a higher place, a more elevated place above the Politburo Standing Committee. And the other thing is that would open up the options for uh, the grooming of a successor and to create more flexibility in the pace of the succession process. For example, once you have the party chairman, you can have another layer of leadership structure at the top of the party. If we look back into the party history, when we had that the position of party chairman, uh, there are two types of power structures under it. Uh, one is before 1956, when the Ace Party Congress was held, which changed the power structure. Uh, so before 1956, you have a party chairman, and under the party chairman, you have a central secretariat, and then you have the Politburo. Okay, and after 1956, you have a party chairman, and then you have a multiple number of party vice chairmen, and then you have the Politburo Standing Committee, which consists of the vice chairman and party chairman, and the chief secretary of which is already called General Secretary of the Central Secretariat. So these guys are Politburo Standing Committee, and then you have the Politburo, and then you have the Central Secretariat. So there are multiple layers. And uh, what Mao did after 1956 is he can promote the anointed successor to the vice party chairman position and groom them. And as we all know, he had deposed a number of them over the years, but that's a position where you can place a potential successor and then observe how they behave before you have finalized your decision to make them the successor. So that's one approach. 
but you can also withhold the creation of the party vice chairman positions and keep them in the Politburo Standing Committee and monitor them from above. Final question, Ling, and then I'll, I'll let you I'll let you go. This has really been really, really interesting, and I, I think has, is a really helpful addition to the conversation to think about where where things are going. At a practical level, and as a you know someone who follows China's political system closely, when you think about the prospect, whatever path is taken, he stays on as general secretary, he revives the office of, of chairman, he rules for life. He rules till by 2027 or 2032 and then steps back. Any of these trajectories, what risks do you see to China's political system or not? Do you think he will be able to navigate this and that this will just be another evolution in China's political system? Or do you have any concerns that we're going down a road which may introduce new instabilities into, into China's system? I understand uh, the reason you asked the question is because the absence of uh, succession norms in autocracies is a huge problem because you don't have a regular change of leadership through election process. But surprisingly, the Chinese system has been so far stable. I mean, you have political upheavals like cultural revolution, and you have the coups like the Huayantang incident in 1976, and you have the toppling of a party chairman, which is a Hua Guofeng's case. But then they carried on without much disruption. Well, there are disruptions in the transitional era, but it's not so severe that would threaten the stability of the one-party rule. And also the previous perception that Xi Jinping has broken some normalized succession rules by the constitutional amendments, the lift of the two-term limits in 2018, I think it has been exaggerated, the level of normalization of succession practices pre-Xiping time. When you think about the practice of Deng Xiaoping, he is he, everything but a stickler to norms. His very comeback to power is by breaking the party conventions, by taking toppling a uh, predecessor, Hua Guofeng. And he did the, 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 the practice, which means to anoint not only your own successor, but also the successor of your successor. That is a very unstable practice because for an autocratic ruler to choose your own successor is an integral part of the prerogative of the autocrat. Uh, so that's unlikely to last. So I don't think Xi Jinping has broken so many norms because the norm is so fluid hmm. when it concerns the top party positions. He's doing something, maybe whatever leader that comes after him will create something yet different from Xi Jinping's practice because the, the system is designed that way. It's a plastic, it's to be shaped by the individual leaders. That was really excellent, Ling. I really appreciate that. And, and also appreciate um, thinking outside of the box uh, on some of these issues. Um, obviously it's, 
Here in Washington, D.C., it's, it's oftentimes easy to get stuck in a cul-de-sac of uh, conventional wisdom. So it, it was um, a really welcome provocation, your essay, The Third Road, Where Will Xi Jinping Go in 2022? And I just really appreciate the, the conversation today. And hopefully you will continue to guide us as we enter this new era of, uh, of succession politics and look forward to your future writings on the party state, but also uh, hopefully you'll continue writing on the issue of, of Xi Jinping's leadership. So thank you very much. And uh, yeah, w- wish you have a great weekend. Hi, Pekingology listeners. I'm Bonnie Lin, director of the CSIS China Power Project and host of the China Power Podcast. I'm inviting you to listen to our conversations with leading experts on the challenges and opportunities presented by China's growing power. We discuss topics such as Chinese military capabilities, China's relations with other countries, and critical issues in U.S.-China relations. You can listen and subscribe to the China Power Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on chinapower.csis.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 